So we're going to start. We're going to start in chapters one, verses seven to fourteen of Ephesians, very quickly um, to bring about this recap. It reads, so Paul says, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood or in the king, which John brought about. Um, In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, not Drake's will or Drake's plan, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in heaven and on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We that were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of God's glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of that inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing about those seven verses because Paul is telling us there's a lot of in him. So as we read it, there's in him, in him, in him, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And he's reminding the people, the Ephesians, the people of God in in Ephesus at this time, that it is in Christ that this inheritance is. It's in Christ that we have redemption. It's in Christ that we have forgiveness, right? And why does he say that? Because the Bible, the Bible isn't a book that tells us there's this great gift of forgiveness of sins, eternal life, uh, knowledge of God, knowing the will of God. You can either take it or leave it. The Bible doesn't do that for us. It's not this great gift that we can either receive or not receive, and we're going to be fine. We know that because Paul in chapter 2, now we're going into chapter 2, verse 1, tells us there's a different inheritance that we do have. There's two inheritance. Chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Right off the bat, Paul's saying, if you're not in Christ, if you're not following Christ, if, you're not, if you haven't been redeemed by Christ, you are actually dead, whether we know it or not. So the Bible tells us you can take this gift, this free gift that's been paid for you by the life of Christ, and be hidden in him, or you can continue in the ways of this world that we all have at one point or another, or maybe still are, and Paul says, the Bible tells us, we're actually dead. Perfect show is the walking dead. The walking dead never knew they were actually dead, except the humans were actually looking at them saying, you guys are dead, you should be dead, if anybody's watched that crazy show. (laughs) No, not a problem, not a problem. So the inheritance that Paul is bringing about is there's a difference about the inheritance in Christ. There's a difference in the inheritance of this world. And here's the good news. Here's the gospel. Gospel, good news. Here's what Paul is getting across to them. Verses 4 in chapter 2, a little further in. But God. So he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins and the ways of this world. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So he's saying whatever... 
whatever life you may have been living in or are living in, Christ loves you in that place and wants you to redeem you in that place because he's already done the work for you. We walk into that place. It is not for us to boast in. It's for us to be the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. And that inheritance is a big deal because as John brought up last week, that Paul is using that inheritance speech, that, that language of inheritance. He's, he's thinking about the Israelites in Egypt in slavery for 400 years. That's Paul's mindset, and he wants to get that across to them. The, the, the Israelites were enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt for 400 years. There is not one man, woman, group of people that by their intelligence, by any great plan, could have taken themselves out of slavery. Now, what did God do? He gave and offered a new inheritance. He raised up Moses and said, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. How am I going to do that, God? Take this staff and take your, uh, your brother Aaron. But God, it's Pharaoh we're going to. Yeah, yeah, just take the staff, take your brother, you're going to be fine. Nothing to boast in for Moses, nothing to boast in for Aaron. He literally conquered Egypt with the staff that God gave him. And God moved through that. The people of Israel had nothing to boast in but see God and say, we're going to follow him because he's taken us out of bondage. John brought up the bondage that we live in today in terms of sin, in terms of uh, whatever bondage you may have, whatever bondage you may have or may be going through. There is nothing we can actually do to get ourselves out of that bondage except look at Christ, walk into him, be hidden in him because he did the work for us. And Paul, again, Paul connects this inheritance, the, the Israelites, John, John spoke about this last week, the inheritance for the people of God out of slavery, now out of Egypt, was to go into this promised land flowing with milk and honey, flowing with milk and honey. And the leader, Moses at the time, understood one thing very well, and we see this in Exodus chapter 33. When he's talking about the inheritance, he's, God is about to take the people of Israel into the promised land, and Moses understands this one thing. He says to God in a conversation, Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Don't bring us up from the desert. For how shall, I, shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us? Is it not you leading us that makes us distinct me and your people, from all the other people on the face of the earth. Moses understood very well that the inheritance is God. The inheritance is God in the land leading his people, not the people in a land that's, that God just ended up blessing them with. That's not the inheritance. It's God being with the people and giving them blessings. The blessing is not the inheritance. The inheritance is Christ. Now, what happens with inheritance? The people walked in. God said, I'll, I'll go with you. I'll go with the people of God. They go into the promised land. What happens with inheritances in our world is we get greedy with them. So you've been given a free gift. Oops, sorry. You get given a free gift, and we get greedy. Some lost long friend, some lost long cousin comes around and says, I'm, I'm in dire need here. I heard that your mother, father... Sister just died, and an inheritance has been passed to you. I need some help here. And we go, no, no. That inheritance was for me. It's not for you. I'm not going to help you out here. Which is the prideful thinking that happened to Israel. 
Israel walked into the promised land through the city of Jericho. And for some reason, they fell into the trap that this inheritance is for us. We are the people of God. We are the special people. And God is for us alone. Alone. Which John brought about the wall of hostility. That proudful thinking that the inheritance is just for us. For us in this building. For any other church that thinks the inheritance is just for them. Brings up wall of hostility between man to man. Man outside of these walls. Walls all around. Okay? And these walls of hostility is what Paul talks about in chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. But now in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, that he might create in in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The hostility that there's only one person that knows God. There is only one people that know God. That hostility was broken down. Interestingly enough, in 1871, there was a group of archaeologists that found a piece of the wall in Jerusalem that surrounded the temple of God. Okay? The temple of God, I, I believe John spoke about this a little bit, nobody was allowed to enter the temple of God past this wall unless you were Jewish. It's hundreds of years after they, they inherited the promised land, that thinking was still around. Nobody can enter if you were not a Jew. A piece of the wall was found by these archaeologists, and there was an inscription on the wall. And it read this, No foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade. A balustrade uh, was like a a patio area and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. So the Jews had written on the wall, whoever who is not a Jew that walks through this wall will die. Will die. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. You will die. Another inscription was found that said, the person that walks through this wall will die along with the person that brought them in. Jesus knew that inscription, knew that law of the people of God and said, I will take that penalty, I will break the wall, and I'll bring in the whole world. Wow. Okay, and that's, that, those are the walls of hostility that Christ has done. And it's not for us to boast about, it's to walk with Christ into the presence of God. There's other walls that have been broken down in the story of God, in the plan of God. Again, as the people of Israel were walking into the promised land, they had to go through a city of Jericho. They had to cross the Jordan River. The city of Jericho was surrounded by walls. God brought those walls down by worship, walking around the walls, and he brought them down by worship. Interesting thing, the people of Jericho worshipped the Jordan River. The Jordan River was thought to be a type of God for them that nobody could cross that river. They should have known that God had already already separated the Red Sea to take the people of Israel through the Red Sea away from the Egyptians. They should have heard about that, their mistake. The people of God walked through the Jordan River and it says that the city of Jericho feared the Lord. One problem, they did not respond in the proper manner. If our walls of, ho- of, all, of our hostility have been broken down, I pray that our response is not to fight back. 
I pray that our response is to submit and to see the glory of God and want to walk into that. One person in the city of Jericho responded in the correct manner to the fear of the Lord, and that was Rahab, a prostitute, that when two spies before the people of Israel went into the city of Jericho, two spies had infiltrated the walls to see where, what the city would look like and how could they plan out their battles once they went through the walls. Rahab saw the two spies and saved the two spies from death, and they left through her window through the wall from her house. She responded in, the people of God are looking at our city. They've already conquered Egypt. They've already crossed the Jordan River. Our gods are defeated. Our walls are defeated. These walls are just but stones to their God. She responded in the right manner. And along with this wall of hostility, Paul uses this language of one man, into, uh, one man in the place of two. One man in the place of two. He's thinking of Adam, the first man that God created, who by his decision or indecision fell to sin and disobedience. And we have all the history of sin and wrongdoing in our world. And then we have Jesus, the second Adam is what the Bible refers him to. The better Adam. And this first Adam has walked into Christ. Because Christ has taken those walls of hostility down. Has walked into Christ and made one new man in the place of two. For the praise and glory of God. And that's what makes the peace. That's what covers up our mess. That we're in Christ. That we're in Christ. And why is this so important to Paul? Why is the the inheritance so important to Paul? Why is the walls of hostility so important to Paul? Why is the new man so important to Paul? And it's because of the context that he's writing to the Ephesians. There's walls up and temples being built in the city of Ephesus, in that city as well. And the reason being is because they have a temple in Ephesus at that time that was to uh, praise and worship the god of Artemis. Has anybody ever heard of the god of Artemis or Diana? Yes, Sean and the history guys. Yes. Okay. This, uh, this temple of Artemis was built up by the whole city. The whole city would join together to make sure the temple was good, that the goddess was, was happy, and there was these walls that were being created. And we know this because if we look at Acts 19, which was the time where Paul was actually in Ephesus for two years preaching every single day to these people. If, we're in Acts, if you turn to Acts 19, um, verses 23 to 28... Acts is just a book of literally the acts of the Holy Spirit working through the early church. It says, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way was Jesus. For a a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to to the craftsmen. So when it says no little, it means a big. So it says no little disturbance, it means a big disturbance. When it says it brought no little disturbance, it means uh, um, no little business. That means a big business. These he gathered together. So Demetrius gathered all the silversmith and the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that this business we have is our wealth, our inheritance. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, that Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods, 
And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. When they heard this message that Paul was turning a great amount of people away from the temple of Artemis, and as the people were turning away from the temple of Artemis, listen to this, the people were turning away from the temple of Artemis, right? Why is it that when the people turned away from the temple, all of a sudden the temple and the goddess of Artemis that is so real, the glory starts separating from them? That the, 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 the magnificence is being deposed from her. Why? If she's a real god, why is her magnificence being taken away from her when people are turning away? It's because that's a god made by our hands. So just like any app in our day today, people create some apps. As long as there's a big following around the app, that app is the best app around. Give it two, three years, nobody cares about that app anymore. The app has lost all its magnificence to the point that nobody even knows who the creator of the app was, unless if that creator keeps creating things. Do we see that? The people's response, instead of saying, this is not a real God, Paul, by pre preaching the good news, is turning a whole gathering of people away from our, from our God, should have responded, submit, let us listen to what Paul has to say, because there's something great going on here. Their response was no. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, to the point where they, they took on, they kind of handcuffed the, the disciples of, uh, of Christ, uh, people that were following Paul, and took them into a, a courtyard, and were going to arrest them, hang them, kill them. And the people of, of God decided to, well, there's a great gathering of people here, let's preach the gospel as they're trying to kill us. And... <laughs> The response of the people was, great is, the, is Artemis of the Ephesians, and they drowned out the gospel. That was their response. And Paul is, Paul is saying this to us, reminding us of these things, because if we are not in Christ, if we don't submit to the Lordship of Christ, if we don't live our lives to the glory and praise of God because of the work he has done in us, we would be the same group of people that would say, great is our God. Great is me. I am wonderful. Look how many people follow me. I am great. I am cool. I am awesome. And that's not the response God is looking for. And Paul is making sure this doesn't happen to the early church in Ephesus. And again, 95% of us don't even know the, the temple of Artemis, don't even know who the goddess of Diana is. So I feel sorry for Demetrius and his band of, of, of trades. I wonder what happened to them. So we have, the we have the inheritance of life, eternal life with God, and we have the inheritance of death in this world, which we once walked, if it were not for Christ. Then we have the wall of hostility, that Christ paid the price for all of those walls to come down for the people of God and for the whole world. Which takes us into now chapter 4, verse 17, where John left us off last week. That was a recap, yeah. So, it says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do 
in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of hearts, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. He used another but in chapter 2, but God for being rich in mercy, changed your life. He's describing the old way of living, and then he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. The truth is in Jesus to do what? Paul says to put off your old self, to put off the first couple of verses we just read, which belongs to your former manner of life, which belongs to your former inheritance, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Deceitful desires. Who, dece- who deceived us? Satan deceived us. Through those desires, we have been deceived to think they are worthy of praise, those desires. But in Christ, you have been renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. If we are in Christ, we have true righteousness and holiness, not of our work, but of his work. And I have this example when I was, when I was praying and preparing. I had this example of uh, Levi. We did a little uh, trip to Quebec as a, as a church group. And we went to Quebec just to hang out. And we were at a boutique store uh, buying shoes. And this is maybe once or twice have I ever seen this in my life. The f- both times to this day, I was like, this is ridiculous. I don't know how people do this. But it just, I was reminded of it. Levi saw a pair of shoes that he wanted. And I think Yaku bought it for him. So he received this gift. And he opened the box, received the gift, took his old shoes off put the shoes on, grabbed the old shoes and threw them in the garbage in the store. (laughs) The story gets better. He walks out of the store, okay, and he starts walking like this in his new shoes. And I'm like, Levi, are those shoes too big for you? He's like, no, man, it's dirty outside. I don't want to get my shoes dirty, right? And what's crazy about that is that's what our response should be when we receive the gift of Christ. We receive this marvelous gift. It is not for us to say, it's a good gift, but my shoes are fine. No, this is a a brand new gift that you haven't paid for. Receive it, put it on, right then and there, throw the garbage that you've been walking in out. And then as you walk out, yes, the first couple steps will feel very weird. Why? Because God has renewed your mind to see the death that you've been walking in. And that's the power of Christ. And then I was reminded of a trip that I did to Cuba with my family. And in Cuba, I had still have a friend that I haven't seen in a long time, but his name is Yen. And his family is, to say the least, very poor. The Yen never had a pair of shoe. He played soccer to the national team level. And until me and Eros went down at the age of 13, he played soccer his whole life barefoot. And he made it to the national team. And when me and Errol saw Yen walking barefoot around the streets of Cuba where we lived, we gifted him with a brand new pair of shoes. Yen tried them on the same day we gave it to him. 
He took the shoes off and walked home. The next day, he shows up to our house for breakfast or brunch or whatever we were doing. And he was wearing what it looked like to me a different pair of shoes. And I thought maybe he, he, he exchanged the shoes we gave, it, gave to him. He made some extra cash on the side. I don't know. The shoes did not look like the shoes that we gave him. So I asked Yen, I said, Yen, where did you get those shoes? And he goes, what shoes? And I said, those aren't the shoes I gave you. Those look different. They're black. The shoes I gave you are white. And he goes, I am wearing your shoes. What Yen had done was he put on his brand new pair of shoes. And instead of putting socks on before, he put the shoes on. He put the shoes on and then put the socks over the shoe. And I asked him why he did that. He goes, because I don't want to get them dirty. I don't want to ruin them. And again, without Christ, without Christ, how fast do we take care of our material things? And we cover up our material things and we're very cautious with our material things. But then when we're renewed in Christ, we don't take nearly enough care with our souls. And Yaku preached about this a couple weeks back and he asked us one question. Do we think one prick one prick into our soul would contaminate the whole thing. Yen understood, Levi understood the precious gift that they had just got. And they took care of it. John finished last week with saying, the early church walked people into the river to baptize them in their old clothes. As they walked out of the river, there was someone waiting for them with a set of new clothes to put on. And this is what Paul is talking about. Chapters 1 to 3 are not divided from chapters 4 to 6. This is a natural, a natural way of life. You meditate on chapters 1 to 3 and you will walk out in unity through chapters 5 and 6. We do not meditate on chapters 5 and 6 as we will move into if we meditate on chapters 5 and 6, we will build powerful Christians without God. We will build people. We will build people that will take the blessings of God as the inheritance instead of God as our inheritance. Again, Paul, Paul thinking about the Old Testament and, his, and the Israelites. When the Israelites were delivered from their slavery, from their bondage, they crossed the Red Sea. As they crossed the Red Sea, God did not leave the Red Sea open for them to go back and forth from their old life to the new life. He closed the sea. There was no turning back. There was no turning back. And that's the plan of God. There is no turning back. What is the good news? That we are new in Christ. We are a new creation. And we actually have the power of Christ to walk chapters 5 and 6 out. We have to take note of the order of this letter that Paul is writing. In verses 25 of chapter 4, Therefore, having put away, all away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And he goes on to talk about the differences of old life to new life, which brings us into chapter 5, 
Verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As beloved children is what we're supposed to walk in, as imitators of God. Paul can say this because in chapters 2, he already told the people that you were once far off aliens to the things of God, but now you have been made fellow citizens. You have been made fellow citizens. There's some of us here today that are slowly in the process of becoming Canadian citizens. In Canada, it is very quick to take note and to notice who's a Canadian citizen, but who has been who has immigrated into the country, right? If we as Canadians would go into, let's say, Russia, we'd be able to get spotted very quickly that you are not Russian. The same with the life in Christ. We should be spotted very quickly that we are not of this world. We should be asked, where do you get this joy from? Where do you get this peace from? Because everything around you is in the gutter. Where are you getting this strength from? And again, our answer should be in Christ, not to be ashamed of the gospel. As fellow citizens of the household of God and sons and daughters, we are to be imitators of God, putting off sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Verse 6 Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Again, verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. He's talking about Satan. Do not allow those things to happen again and again and again in your life. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Verse 15, look carefully then now how you walk, which is what Levi was doing. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We have the power to submit to one another because we have Christ. And again, he's given us these immeasurable riches of grace towards us. And this this immeasurable riches of blessings of grace is to walk these things out in unity. In John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying for his disciples as he goes to the cross, he doesn't pray for the disciples to uh, take demons out of people, to have these miracles and wonders, all those things come. But what Jesus prays is that his disciples would be one, united together, as Jesus and the Father are one and united together. Because that's the inheritance. And this unity that God is bringing out about in us starts in the household. And we can work through chapters 5 and 6 where he's, he's telling the, the wives to submit to the husbands, the husbands to love the, your wives as, as Jesus loved the church. Okay? Jesus, for the husbands, Jesus did not give up his authority. He did not give up his power to go to the cross. His power and authority climaxed at the cross. 
So in our submitting to our wives, in our submitting and loving our wives, our power and authority is actually rising for the gifts in our, for the gifts in our wives and the spiritual nourishment of our wives to rise. And wives, submit to your husbands like we are called to submit to Christ. And it, you, you move further into the household where Paul is telling the children, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you, so that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. For Paul, what characterizes a Gentile culture, a non-believing culture, is that children disobey their parents. In the household, that's what, what distincts Paul, from a believing family, from a submitted family in Christ, to one that is or isn't. The disobedience. And then we move into chapter 6, verses 10. The armor of the Lord. To put on the armor of the Lord. The armor of the Lord is not for us to put it on and walk into our house. And start fighting everybody in our house because we're righteous. We've got the breastplate of righteousness. We've got the belt of truth. We've got the helmet of salvation. We don't put on the armor to walk into our homes. We don't put on the armor to talk to our friends, to talk to our pastor, to pray for each other. The armor of God is when there is unity in the home, we put on the armor as we leave our home. And again, the unity in the home that God is bringing about is so that the world may believe that our God is for real. And the armor is so that we are not defeated by the deceitful desires of Satan, by the words that this, this world has to offer to us. And again, it's... It's a walking with Christ. It's a life with Christ, a renewed life in Christ. It's not about the outward signs. It's about what, what your life looks like in Christ. Okay? Again, we can build powerful Christians without Christ. We can teach people how to behave, how to think in certain situations, but we have to be in Christ individually so that together we are unified in Christ. If not, in Acts 19 again, if we look at Acts 19, there was, sons of, there was a, a, a two people called the sons of Sceva that were following Paul around. Okay? And they were seeing the miracles that Paul was doing. What they didn't see is the salvation of, of Paul. What they didn't experience was the conversion of Paul from Saul to Paul. What they're seeing is the powerful outward signs of Paul. And they decide, well, we're going to do it too. So they go up to demon-possessed person and they go, in Jesus' name, you've got to come out. The demon comes out. You can read this in Acts 19. goes, I know Paul and I know Jesus. I don't know you. Beats them up, leaves them naked. And that's the end of story for the sons of Sceva. Why? Because they did not understand that you have to be in Christ for these things to be fruitful, for these things to come out of us in unity. And the, the most powerful thing about that story is that that happened. God wasn't debunked. God wasn't proven a liar because Jesus' name was being preached. No, no, no. Actually, it says the crowd saw that and praised God. Why? Because they said those two are fakes. Paul's the real deal. We're following Paul because he's in Christ.
And after all this body of armor, after all this is said and done, Paul says, and pray at all times. Pray at all times. Pray at all times. Pray for all the saints and pray for me. Why? Because our prayer life is more than likely, like John said last week, a direct relationship with God. It tells us what our relationship with God is like. If we're not praying, if we're not singing hymns and praises to God together by ourselves, the question has to be, what are we thinking of when we run into trouble? What are we turning to for answers in this world? And in in fact, what is our relationship with God like? And finally, Paul ends the letter for his readers by extending them to, to them peace, love, faith, and grace to be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Jesus' love is incorruptible and will not pass away. And I'll leave you with a quote from, uh, from N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar. He says, After all, what being a Christian is all about is loving Jesus with an undying love in response to his dying love for us. I'll finish uh, in prayer. Father, may we, may we see your glory, may we see the power in the life of Jesus, in the resurrected Jesus, in the Jesus on the cross. May we receive that gift, Father. May we respond. May we respond with submitted hearts, bowed knees and rise up Father from that place with renewed minds new hearts filled with joy and peace because of what your son has done for us and in that place God we can love one another forgive one another be in unity so that the world can see that you are who you say you are like you've always been Father may we cherish this inheritance of yours God And may we live lives for the praise and glory of your son's name. Amen.